Our second lesson is from uh, the Gospel of Mark, and it's printed there in your liturgy. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Open our ears, O Lord, that we would hear the gospel, our eyes, that we would see the world the way that Jesus does more and more. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Jesus does not win any popularity contests with the powers that be in the world that he lives in. He hangs out with the wrong sorts of people, people who the religious leadership would be embarrassed to be around, He talks about the Old Testament law in a way that suggests that he has a unique relationship with it and even authority over it. And in the text in front of us this morning, he talks about the temple, the pride and lifeblood of Israel's past, present, and future. He talks about this temple as if its destruction is imminent. And then goes on in the verses that follow in chapter 13, warning his disciples that when this happens, and of course this happens in the year 70, when Rome comes in and storms Jerusalem, he warns his disciples not to lift a finger to keep it from being destroyed. Instead, he exhorts the disciples to resist the temptation to take up the sword against Rome, there to abandon Jerusalem and head for the hills. If we had been among the disciples on that day, Jesus' prophecy would have been deeply disturbing and disorienting. I mean, it would have been the kind of thing that you hear and, and you stop and you say, did, did I hear that right? I remember uh, being with a very good friend of mine on 9-11. And uh, we were having breakfast at the Pancake House up in the northern suburbs somewhere. I forget now. And uh, Walker Brothers. And um, 
we're looking at the television and sort of like, what, wait, what, what, what? I mean, it's this kind of thing that the disciples would have had in their mind. That, what are you taught? What? The temple? And, and, and we're not supposed to defend it? I mean, this is not an easy thing to hear. And even though we have the benefit of being on the other side of the destruction of the temple, even though we have the benefit of recognizing that God worked through a catastrophe to bring about new life in an expanded and ever-expanding divine presence in this world among the new community gathered around the ascended Jesus, even though we have the benefit of knowing what we do, I want to try to feel the warning language here. Jesus' warning language, I want to feel it for what it is. Uh, Because these words from Mark's gospel this morning, they feel like the right kind of language for the world that we live in right now. They just, something about them emotionally resonates, doesn't it? This apocalyptic language. For they are words that take into account the ever-present chaos and instability of our world. And they are also words that point us towards God's way to relate to the ever-present chaos and instability that is in the world. Like you, I read, listen to, watch the news... I look at the world around me with my own two eyes and I wonder, like perhaps you do, what does this all mean? Will it always be just more of the same? How am I supposed to respond to all of the pain, the injustice, the turmoil? And it's not only the world around me that bewilders me and makes me anxious and causes me pain. Sometimes the angst comes from catching a glimpse of my own heart as it really is, full of turmoil, doubt, mixed motives, selfishness, and the like. What am I to make of that? Is that who I really am? Is that who I always will be? With all of the instability and chaos, what is it that we're supposed to hold on to? Or perhaps another way of putting the question, a way that follows the contours and trajectory of our text in Mark this morning, would be to ask what? In the face of confusion, instability, and chaos, what should we not hang on to? What would it be wrong to hold on to? For the disciples in this passage, it was the temple that they should not be hanging on to. It was the defense of Jerusalem with the sword, the returning Rome's violence with more violence that they were supposed to resist doing. Again, not hard for not easy for them to hear 
What about us? Where are their analogies? What is it that we are thrown off balance by? What is it in our world that will eventually crumble in our midst that we have trusted in too much? What is it that we should not be trying to cling to or defend? Well, finding our value in what we achieve is one thing that our society constantly foists upon us. And we should not only resist that, but we should mount a counter-narrative against it. And that's what we talked about at communion this morning. But in the time we have remaining to ponder the question, what we should not hold on to, I want to step back with you and take a wide-angle view of what we know about how God works in the world and what we know about the things that often gets in our way of recognizing God's work in the world. Wide-angle view. In the Old Testament, the prophets often decry those who put their trust in princes and war horses and armies when they should be putting their trust in Yahweh. There's also a strong theme in the Old Testament, and Caleb brought this up just a couple of weeks ago. The theme that I'm referring to is the flashing red lights that go off in Scripture wherever God's people put more energy into religious activity, temple worship and ceremonies, sacrifices. They put more energy into that than caring for the poor in their midst. And like in the parable of the Good Samaritan last week that Aaron preached on, Jesus was always suggesting that there was a way to see the world right and a way to see the world wrong, that he was the one who would enable us to see it right. That way includes a radical welcome to all people, recognizing that our neighbor is the one who we're to love because our neighbor It's not someone we choose, but our neighbor is given to us by God. So when Jesus steps into that great prophetic tradition, when Jesus steps into that wide-angle view and comes along and warns the disciples not to defend the temple. What he's saying is, don't trust in these stones to help you see what God is doing in the world. Don't trust in this tradition to see what God is doing in the world. Trust in me and the new community that I'm gathering around myself, a community that's saturated with grace and mercy. See how I'm teaching you to see God's love and welcome of all people. Trust in me to be your rock of stability in a world that will tempt you to find stability in all of the wrong things. What, what are those things? What, what, what categories, what, what ways of relating to the world around us cause us to, uh, to not be able to see God's love at work in our lives, God's love at work in the world. Well, 
one of the things that we mentioned was on the way to communion, we talked about how various versions of perfectionism cause us not only from not being able to see the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God at work in our own lives, but it causes us to not open ourselves up to be gracious presence with other people. In fact, because we're not gracious with ourselves, we can't be gracious with them either. One thing. Here's another. Um, And I find it always difficult to come up with practical examples because um, I just don't think that way, honestly. I remember, some of you heard me tell the story before, there was this delightful person here at Grace a long time ago that just had this way of saying, so in such a lovely way, she just had, had a way of being blunt. And uh, I was out to dinner with her and her husband one night. She says, you know, Bob, when you preach, I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> and it was, it was the beginning of an awakening for me. And, uh, but I still struggle with practical examples. And that's what she was saying. Give me practical examples. So when I'm trying to come up with them, I reach here, reach here, reach there. This one maybe resonates with you, hopefully. Recently, when I was in um, Florida looking in on my parents, I had coffee with an old friend of mine who, when I knew him in Florida years ago, he was in high school and then in college. And I worked with high school students and then with college students at the church where I worked there. Now he's quite a bit older, young father and husband, successful in his vocation, comfortable financially. In our rambling conversation We talked a bit about the themes that came up in the lectures that we had recently by Miroslav Voff. He was wanting to know what Voff was saying, and having spent so much time recently around that, that was the first thing that came to my mind. Um, And as I shared with him some of the things that Miroslav said when he was with us, uh, he made the observation about his own life that in our society, we just tend to assume that making more money, working more hours, being more successful, that's just what you do when you have the opportunity to do it. And doggone it, it's downright ungrateful and un-American not to take advantage of that opportunity when you have it. And he pondered that not questioning that norm of the spirit of our age, not questioning that can leave us in a spot where we lose focus and, and put our trust in the wrong place, in the wrong things. How would you and I know if we're doing this or not? It'll be a question that's answered in a personal way for each of us, contingent upon all sorts of conditions, but to suspect that we might be off kilter in this area is probably a good thing to concern ourselves with. Another thing I worry about is the degree to which the public square has been taken over by political partisanship. Now, hang on. I know that I, know that I talk about this a lot. Um, I'm going to try to nuance it today so it's not a broken record or one banjo string. So be patient with me here. When I say that the public square has been taken over by political partisanship, well, one thing, you probably say, duh, right? Of course it has. 
but no one has clean hands with this. And what I mean by that is that I suspect that we are all, to one degree or another, guilty of sizing each other up according to the perception that we have of the other person's political leanings. It seems to me that virtually everyone is doing this, whether they're aware of it or will admit it or not. It has simply become a filter. It's a filter in our society. This is a huge problem. And we Christians should know it is a problem because we of all people should recognize and reject the temptation to objectify people or worse, demonize them. Now I know that that talking about the dangers of of politicizing um, the gospel is something that we do around here a lot. But I hope you can hear the nuance here. The reality is is that political anger and self-righteousness from both sides of the aisle has become so loud and occupies so much space in the public square that people of faith can become sucked up into the temptation to see every problem and name every problem as a result of the work of our political adversary. Rather than seeing the enemies of human flourishing as a problem that all people of goodwill should be motivated to work on together. I mean, that's that's a big deal. I mean, like if you... You know, if, if we get to the point, I'll just say me, okay? If I get to the point where the, when I recognize a problem in the world around me, in my neighborhood around me, if I'm tempted to and, and want to identify that problem first and foremost as the fault of my political adversary, I have missed an opportunity to look at something that's an enemy of human flourishing for all people and find a way to work with other people to solve it. I think Christians have a responsibility in our age to be concerned about things like this. Remember, um, it's always it's always easy to think that we see the world in the right way when in fact the message of the gospel is that we are almost always left to our own devices, um, not only tempted to, but succumbing to the temptation of seeing the world not through God's eyes, but through our own eyes. Um, It's easy to have our vision of the world obstructed. And part of the reason why this happens easily to us is that, you know, in the examples that I gave today, like striving to to do things the right way, that's a good thing, right? Uh, striving to be a good parent, that's a good thing. Um, work and success, they're not bad things. Spirited political disagreement, they're not bad things. But remember, it is always the august traditions and the venerable institutions. In Jesus' unique context, 
um, think the temple and the religious leaders' interpretation of the Mosaic law, it's always the august traditions and the, and the venerable institutions that tempt us to overtrust them to the point that we miss out on what God is actually wanting for us. Chapter 13 in Mark's Gospel is sometimes called the mini-apocalypse. Apocalypse means revealing things for how they really are. In the Gospel of Mark, as well as in the whole of the New Testament, only an abandoned, shamed, and failed Messiah, crucified on the cross outside the gates of Jerusalem, only that event reveals what God is doing in the world to change the world. May God show us the world through that cross and reveal to us what we are trusting in and what we are affectionate towards that robs us of the riches of his grace and mercy. And in so doing, robs our communities and our neighborhoods of our empathetic love for the other who is our neighbor. And then may God give us hearts of repentance. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.